Welcome to Shakespeare and Pal, Episode 9, The Rape of Lucrece. As you can tell by the title, a bit of a trigger warning here, there is going to be discussion of sexual assault and suicide. That's a spoiler for the ending, but you have been warned. Hello, I am Michael. And, and I am Sophie. I am definitely happy to be here. What is your unique female perspective on rape, Sophie? Uh, that it is bad and it shouldn't be happening. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it's such a hot take, a very hot take. Very hot take. Greg is not here today. He has been having some troubles, which we shall not go into. He is just having some life troubles at the moment. What is your relationship to the rape of Lucrece, Sophie? Is this a favourite of yours? I had never read this ever before. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't even really know that it existed. Like, I know Shakespeare has poems, and the most obviously famous one is um, You're Like a Summer Day or something, that one. Um, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Yeah, that one, that one. And... um I didn't even know about the previous one that we did, um, Adonis um, and Venus. So, like, yeah, no, absolutely had no relationship to this poem whatsoever. Blissfully so. (laughs) So I take it you didn't like it. Did you at least uh, did you at least have any relationship to the historical story? Did you know about it? Um, To be honest, no. Like, um, I was like, okay. Cool. I'm, I guess I'll Google and Wikipedia this. It's like, oh, okay. So no, this is based on a, a true story with quotation marks. I did not know that. Um, it feels a little disingenuous or, you know, um, melodramatic to to make, basically make the this incident the reason why the Roman Empire fell apart. But it seems to be a straw that broke the camel's back moment. I mean... So- it's a really big empire. There were other things going on. like um, I mean, this was when it was a very small uh, monarchy. This is before it became a world uh, straddling colossus. True, true. Still, it seems a bit excessive to warrant... I mean, I think we can all agree rape is bad, but should we end a nation over it? <laughs> that's, that's your words, Sophie. Those are exactly your words. <laughs> Wait, no! That's not what I mean! It seems, uh... It seems too good to be true that a kingdom ended, considering how very little uh, society seems to care yes. for the assault of women. That's mostly my take. C- certainly. It is a... a one, one imagines that if this was... The real life story would probably be like someone saying, oh, no, she was asking for it. Of course she was asking for it. She killed herself. That's evidence. She was just so ashamed of herself. I mean, that's kind of literally what he says. That's literally what he says. Yeah. Tale as old as time. And my relationship to this poem, quite like the other one, I hadn't read this before. I actually, no, I tried reading it once, got bored. And I stopped. I do know the story, mainly because I listened to Mike Duncan's The History of Rome podcast, 
that great granddaddy of historical podcasts, and he did an episode about the Tarquins and the rape of Lucrece and the death of the Roman uh, monarchy. But as we can say, there has been quite a shift in how popular these poems are. Used to be the case that these were the popular things Shakespeare did. These were the things people, what people knew Shakespeare for. Now they are the things no one reads, that people can go their entire life never having any idea that Shakespeare wrote them. Most people's, um, what's the word, exposure, I guess, to Shakespeare nowadays seems to be, you know, through school, especially if you're, you know, you're an um, English-speaking country, like mm-hmm. New Zealand, Australia. And these poems technically, I feel, are a little bit much for teens. Like, Romeo and Juliet is, is you know, just tiresome enough it is certainly the language is certainly a bit more dense here there is far less natural dialogue also um venus and adonis was kind it was just on the edge of being kind of pornographic in some air some places and you also have um and then you have this topic Mm, yes yeah and I don't, and I think enough uh, parents will go, excuse me, you are making my child learn about this? So, yes, that, that's not something you want to put on a book list. Uh, no, 20, no. The Rape of Lucrece. <laughs> just, just the name alone makes, it gives pause. Um, like, there's a reason why you don't read that um, Shakespearean play about um, that lady that gets her hands and tongue cut out you know Titus Andronicus yeah no never never really read or heard of that play until I watched the uh, the Julie Taymor version by the woman who did um, the Lion King stage musical like my god that was rough watching so yeah no I can absolutely see why these poems beyond being dense texts just being a bit of a radioactive stuff for for schools they are certainly both in terms of subject matter and the way they present that subject matter are not suited for uh i mean i'm sure that a lot of 15 year olds would like the pornographic sexual nature of these but it's not something the teachers or the parents would like absolutely not <laughs> it's like someone was saying the mighty boosh is like a children's show with more swearing, which the children would probably like, but not the parents. I have never seen an episode of Mighty Bush. We're calling it a, ch- a children's show with um, more swearing is pretty much uh, right. It's by the guys who, it's sort of by the guys who did Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Oh, no, that's a, that's a great show. It's such a dumb show, but great nonetheless. But anyway... Now into the biography section. The biography is pretty much the same as for Venus and Adonis. It was plague time. Shakespeare still needed some money. He wrote for patronship and he wrote this poem. And as we have said, this poem was incredibly popular, just like Venus and Adonis. The reason why these two poems were not included in the first folio of his plays was because they were still making a lot of money for the original publisher. So whatever we think of these poems, 
They were a draw for money. They were, I won't say box office, uh, they were uh, they were bringing in the bank. I think that is the free. I but think making bank. Making bank. They were making bank. I think that is the phrase. And editing will make it seem like I got that on the first go. <laughs> the Rape of Lucrece by Shakespeare. To put the plot up top, there is far more happening in this than there was in Venus and Adonis, but still not that much. What happens is that a man called Colantine is bragging about his wife, the virtuous, chaste Lucrece, the son of the king of Rome, Sextus Tarquin, decides to take that as a challenge. He goes to Colantine's house with the intent to seduce Lucrece. He doesn't seduce her. He then has some internal backing and for some internal conflict about whether he should rape her. He does rape her. She tries to talk him out of it. She fails. She then, after being raped, looks at a painting which is strangely relevant to her for a very long time. Then at the end, she tells her menfolk, her father, her husband, their friends, that she has been raped by Tarquin, she kills herself, and then a guy called Brutus comes up and says, let's kill Tarquin and drive out the Roman kings. That is the entirety of the plot. As with Venus and Adonis, this story is like five pages in the original sources. So that's Livy's histories and Ovid's Fasti. Five pages in the original here, it's a hundred pages. Sophie, do you think that this does a better job of putting those 100 pages to use than Venus and Adonis? I mean, in terms of plot beats, there is technically more happening. So I suppose if you are describing all of this in excruciating detail, it makes sense that it has so many more pages is it worth it i do not know when you say is not when you say is it worth it uh, what, what particularly is uh straining your liking of it i mean is it worth the paper first of all ah. <laughs> is, is it worth the paper i mean for me at least this does it does get that good ratio, I think, for me. With Venus and Adonis, I do like how long it goes on for certain things. However, it is certainly... The ratio of words to events, I feel, is a bit better in this one. It's still luxuriant, but there is more stuff going on. It is... Uh, he luxuriates just the right amount for me. I mean, there are some, like parts that just did make me go oh that's infuriatingly good writing if i can find it on my notes but oh my my notes are so glib this time <laughs> there's a lot of jesus christ williams in in my um comment there's a lot of also i do not know what this means 
Oh yeah, cr I have found my criminally evocative imagery, um, which is his falchion on a flint. He softly smiteth that from the cold stone sparks of fire do fly. Whereat a waxen torch forthwith he lighteth, which must be lodestar to his lustful eye. And to the flame thus speaks advisedly, as from this cold flint I am forced to this fire. So Lucrece must I force to my desire. And I'm just like, um. Oh. God damn it. It's such a good imagery there. I can just picture it. It's, it's very well done. I hate it. Why exactly do you hate it? Is it just that you feel that he shouldn't be talking about this in this much detail, but you have to admit it's good detail writing? Yeah, exactly that. It's like someone was saying, you, you made a toilet out of gold, and it's definitely a beautiful toilet, but why did you make the toilet out of gold? Yes. Why did you use the gold to make a toilet? It's like there are better things to make gold out of. Things out of gold. It's, mm, just everything about this is incongruous and it's awful and I don't like it. <laughs> when it comes to, I mean, there is, I would say that the kinds of thing this is doing, it does very much feel like one of those modern works which is trying to do a novelization of some old story. Well, if you look at the old story, the old story is like 10 pages, but someone did a modern novel based on it. And they do go into dwell on the details. They do go on to caress the details. And that I think this is this Shakespeare thing, just an early example of doing that sort of thing, where rather than just that summarizing that happens in a lot of those old stories, he just goes in and follows each moment. So it does feel kind of modern in that way. Yeah, like the 1,000th retelling of Snow White, the 1,000th retelling of Cinderella, the putting something familiar and then into a setting where you can think about the psychology of everyone's actions. Because I suppose Greek and Roman myths do seem very dramatic, just pointlessly so um to perhaps the shakespearean reader and having something technically happen or at least recorded to have happened that literally destroyed a kingdom especially in english you know monarchical age just must have seemed like oh my god the italians so hot-blooded how could they have possibly thought this was a reasonable thing to do so being a modern person shakespeare's like oh i'll retell it i'll make it make sense I mean, on that note i mean you you mentioned that this is a story about the fall of a monarchy however we've been talking about how much it goes into detail it's quite odd the moment when it doesn't go into detail <laughs> like the fall of the monarchy let me open this up it goes on, on and on and on and on about various things. It goes on for like pages about her looking at a painting. Whereas when they had sworn to this advised doom, they did conclude to bear dead Lucrece thence to show her bleeding body through Rome. And so to publish Tarquin's foul offence, which being done with speedy diligence, the Romans plausibly did give consent to Tarquin's everlasting banishment. So that is the entirety of the fall of the Roman monarchy. 
That is it. Especially those last three lines. It's like it's like the version. It's like a a morbid version of and they lived happily ever after. Except you know, and that's how the Roman Empire fell, or the Roman monarchy fell, because the empire technically hadn't started yet. It is. It, it is certain. It's like he was running up against a deadline. And he's okay. I've done the rape. I've done the rape. And it's like, oh, oh, now, oh, uh, it's tomorrow. Okay, just uh, and, and then the Roman Empire fell. The Roman monarchy fell. Yeah, no, that's yeah. Just why? Why did he choose choose to do this? I guess he decided that you know what the the whole part that didn't make sense to everyone was that she she said, "Get my revenge. Make just get justice for me." kills herself and was that the most baffling part and that's why they were like okay cool yeah no that's that's what i'm going to explore the psychology behind a woman ending her life and posthumously ensuring the end of a monarchy because as far as the you know the modern shakespearean reader was concerned the romans were pagans Especially while they were, they were, I mean, I would say they would view them as the best kind of pagans possible. Perhaps in some ways a bit more civically uh, virtuous than most Christian nations. But of course, they, they lacked a few things. Because, <laughs> yeah, like, um, they were, as far as history tells us, the Romans were still worshipping Roman gods. They didn't really get into Christianity until... Um, the Empire, and Jesus. Yeah, this was pre-Jesus. So there is no way that they could have been Christians. So, um... I mean, by the Renaissance, they had already, they had come to the conclusion that certainly they were all burning in hell, but they had a very good civilization. Exactly, Mark. Which is such a, such a, so weird, so weird. Anyway, um, beer baiting is okay. I'm going to cut that out of context and just put that. (laughs) Fair enough. I have now. I've lost my train of thought. You can also edit that out. We were talking about psychology of the characters, and I like that you mentioned psychology because one of the things that Shakespeare does add to this is psychology. If you read the original ones of them, if you read the original, there is no conflict. There is no uh, psychological conflict in the original. Whereas in this one, Tarquin is saying, oh, should I do this? Oh, no, I can't. Oh, but I must. Oh, but I can't help myself. That's Shakespeare's innovation. In the original, he's thinking, I want to rape this woman. She does not want to be seduced. Therefore, I will rape her. So Shakespeare does add this. And we we get a sense of the kinds of things we'll do in his later plays with those long soliloquies going through each aspect of thought up to a conclusion. And some people have found even a bit of, uh, well, Brutus from uh, Julius Caesar in this Tarquin, the way he seems to talk himself into a conclusion he has already taken. Yeah, no, I definitely agree on that. And taking notes for this play, not play, poem is so exhausting just because it's so long. There are far more comments clustered into the pages at first, and then they just get scarcer and scarcer. Um. So there's a, at around line 360, or slash however many stanzas that is, as each unwilling portal yields him way through little vents and crannies of the place, the wind roars with his torch to make him stay and blows the smoke of it into his face. 
extinguishing his conduct in this case, but his hot heart, which fond desire doth scorch, puffs forth another wind that fires the torch, and blah, 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 blah. and it's like, night-wandering weasels shriek to see him there, they fright him, yet he still pursues his fear, and... My comment says, "'Tis annoying how this makes sense. Like horror junkies keep watching movies that scare them or thrill junkies and roller coasters, I guess. For the um, the above, where I read out the stanza below, I wrote, "'Nature abhors a moral vacuum.'" Yes, it is certainly a pathetic fallacy. Even the weasels scream out at the terror that's going to be done. But yeah, he constantly goes, oh, I shouldn't be do this, shouldn't be doing this. I should, you know, I should respect my man. Um, I don't, I shouldn't be breaking the ultimate bro code. It is, it it is uh, interesting how psychology does change throughout this. Uh, Because it's not just that he's saying, oh, I mustn't do this or I mustn't do this. Oh, but I will. Uh, Ah, so it does begin with him him seeing this woman saying, oh, I want to have sex with her. Oh, but she won't come to me. But then he says, as from this cold flint, I enforce this fire. So Lucrece must I force to my desire. So that begins with him saying, oh, I will rape her. But then he says, here, pale with fear, he doth premeditate the dangers of his loathsome enterprise. And in his inward mind, he doth debate what following sorrow may on this arise. Then looking scornfully, he doth despise his naked armour of still slaughtered lust, and justly thus controls his thoughts unjust. So fair torch, burn out thy light, and lend it not to darken her whose light excelleth thine. So he's already thinking, no, no, I mustn't do it, I mustn't do it. So, ah, so then he says, had Colantinus killed my son or sire, or lain in ambush to betray my life, or were he not my dear friend, this desire might have excuse to work upon his wife, as in revenge or quittal of such strife. But as he is my kinsman, my dear friend, the shame and fault finds no excuse nor end. Now this is going, this, this, this goes to what you said, Sophie, about the bro code, essentially. He's forgotten about the evil of rape. He's now thinking, oh, well, he's my friend. If he was my enemy, then yes, yes, I could rape his wife. That would be fine. It, it, he's already weakening his reasons against doing it. It's like it's a matter of politeness now. Matter of politeness. And also, um, he, throughout the poem, shifts the responsibility of stopping him to outside forces. So he's like, oh, this wouldn't be happening um, if, you know, her Lucretia's husband was here to stop me. Um, this wouldn't be happening if the light would just cease to light. And But on that point, even then... He sort of turns the presence of obstacles into a, a thing to push him forward. I, so, like, you read a line before where he was going through doors, opening doors. There were locked doors. He's pushing through doors. And then he says, So, 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 quoth he, these lets attend the time, like little frost that sometimes threat the spring to add a more rejoicing to the prime and give the sleeped birds more cause to sing. Pain pays the income of each precious thing. Huge rocks, high winds, strong pirate shells and sands, the merchant fears, ere rich at home he lands. So now the obstacles, he has faced obstacles, and now he's saying, ah, but this will just make the prize the sweeter. This is, this makes me valiant. My note says, lack of self-awareness, considering he's the fucking pirate in this situation. So he, he does seem to go back and forward. He'd, at this point, he is very much thinking, 
Ah, nothing can stop me. Ah, this is good, actually. I should do this. Mm. But by the time he does get to her, by the time he does sort of, you know, pin her down in her bed, he does start to say, oh, no, I can't help myself. I know this is bad, but I can't help myself. So in line 404, well, actually, if I just start at the stanza, it's, then love and fortune be my gods, my guide. My will is backed with resolution. Thoughts are but dreams till their effects be tried. The blackest sin is cleared with absolution, etc. My my note is, I'm not going to let my dreams be memes, man. And I hate this man. And I also hate myself. Uh, so, he, so he says here, I see what crosses my attempt will bring. I know what thorns the growing rose defends. I think the honey guarded with a sting. All this beforehand, counsel comprehends. But will is death and hears no heedful friends. Only he hath an eye to gaze on beauty and dotes on what he looks. Against law or duty, I have debated even in my soul what wrong, what shame, what sorrow I shall breed. But nothing can affection's course control or stop the headlong fury of his speed. I know repentant tears ensue the deed, reproach, disdain, and deadly enmity, yet strive I to embrace mine infamy. This does almost seem like a, a 19th century romantic grasping of fate here. It is, he's trying to, he's saying that, you know, I know what I'm going to do is bad. Uh, he's looked into her eyes, who is plainly a feared, and he's saying, I know what I'm going to do is bad, but I can't help myself. And what's more, I will embrace mine infamy. It, it does almost feel a tad like some uh, romantic hero lunging into a certain destruction. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have what does seem like an incredibly um, blunt metaphor. So after he said, I'm going to rape you, he says, this said, he shakes aloft his Roman blade, which like a falcon towering in the skies, coucheth the fowl beneath his wing's shade, whose crook yada yada yada. So it, it I mean, he, he mentions fowl, so a fowl, one of the fowls is a cock, uh, and also Roman blade. I know it's a literal blade, but there is no uh, denying the implications here about what his naked weapon could be. Yeah, no, I actually, one of my notes said, Falcon, wait, isn't falchion a Roman blade? Then it uses the actual word falchion later. It's like, okay, cool. No, I'm glad I'm right. I, I do, I do have an education. One of Shakespeare's patented puns. And also, um, a little further back, something about a mortal sting. And um, my note says, was that a fucking dick joke? But she, sound sleeping, fearing no such thing, lies at the mercy of his mortal sting. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. William, yeah. you're bitter than this. But anyway, No, he isn't. Maybe he is not. <laughs> I had faith, however, that he was. On that note, is like, we, we, like one of the things with Shakespeare is that because he is a very famous writer, people try to interpret his works in such a way that they will agree with their values. And because he is a playwright, that's somewhat easy, because Shakespeare in the plays doesn't say anything. He makes characters say things. So you can just say, oh, no, this character said that, and this character has these motivations, therefore Shakespeare is not saying that. In this, uh, and also in Venus and Adonis, there's sort of a close third person where we are very much in either Adonis's head or Venus's head. 
in this one, there is quite a clear omniscient third-person voice, which is always moralizing at certain points. And I mean, I won't say the narrator is Shakespeare, but it does sort of tell us what to think. Uh, it does tell us how to morally interpret certain things. How did you view that? I was, I didn't really view it, so to speak, as anything. It just seemed like um, an appropriate framing device to me, um, to use because it's so goddamn long. So having a storyteller, you know, reciting what happens as actually happened in Venus and Adonis as well, because considering, you know, there were plenty of moments where just quoth she, yeah, come to me, Adonis. And um, she goes unconscious, all that stuff. So although the previous poem that we covered was mostly in her perspective, it wasn't just her perspective. There was also an empirical narrator. And since he's using the exact same framing device. I didn't really think it strange or unusual. Although it is nice to have an empirical voice going, yeah, this is bad. What he's doing is bad. This is bad, guys. Yes, yes. Certainly, especially given that uh, there was someone pointing out that there are a few lines where she is, you know, when she's sleeping in her bed and then we have, then we have, Tarquin's view of her, her, his eyes ogling her body as she's sleeping there. Oh, I know which one you're talking about. Ah, so her lily hand, her rosy cheek lies under, cosming the pillow of a lawful kiss, who therefore angry seems to part in sunder, swelling on either side to want his bliss, between whose hills her head entombed is, where like a virtuous monument she lies to be admired of lewd and hollowed eyes. It goes on. Apparently, yes, but, you know, as you say, Sophie, it is irritatingly well written. It is. (laughs) And um, and I was like, okay, no, this is... It's like Edo Manga Sensei, irritatingly well drawn. I don't know about that one, but... I have not touched that one. Only the... Officer. I have not touched that one, officer. <laughs> don't, don't Google it, please. Whoever, whoever listens to it, please, to this podcast, I beg of you, do not research. Anyway, um, like her, her hair, golden threads, etc. Oh, modest wantons, wanton modesty, showing life's triumph in the map of death. And death's dim look in life's mortality, each in her sleep, themselves so beautify, as if between them twain there were no strife, but that life lived in death, and death in life. And the next stanza I have commented, Jesus Christ, William. Her breasts breasts. like ivory globes, circled with blue, a pearled world. Unconquered, she breasted boobily down the stairs. (laughs) It is... I mean, apparently, you know, that these uh, passages were anthologized in those, you know, wit and wisdom of English poetry in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, so the, the notes in my one are saying, it seems odd that, I mean, this is obviously good writing, but the audience does seem to be identifying with Tarquin, the rapist's lustful eyes. And I mean, this certainly is the male gaze, I will say. Or maybe, maybe we can say that Shakespeare is merely inhabiting the eyes of an evil rapist here. Ah, 
but you know, as you say, it's, like, it's thankfully Shakespeare does go on to say this is bad, guys. You shouldn't rape women. Because yeah. even when Lucrece is blaming herself, she's saying, oh, no, I, was, I didn't mean to do it, but I, I, I shouldn't have done, I should have, you know, maybe put up more resistance. Shakespeare is quite, the narrator at least, is quite clear. No man inveigh against the withered flower, but chide rough winter that the flower hath killed, not that devoured, but that which doth devour is worthy blame. Oh, let it not be held, poor women's fault, that they are so fulfilled with men's abuses. Those proud lords to blame make weak made woman tenets to their shame. So essentially, he's found quite a sexist way of defending Lucrece. Like, oh, women, they're weak. You can't blame them for the evil things that happen to them. They, you can't expect better from them. But, you know, he is saying this is a bad thing. Don't, don't get me wrong. She should not have been raped. I am thumbs upping at my screen. We were talking about the narrator quite thankfully saying this is a bad thing. And I think one of the reasons why he takes time, I mean, let's be kind to the Elizabethans. They knew that rape was a bad thing. Just, however, just as now, there is some quite sexist ideas of what constitutes a real rape. So, there, so yes, there, there were problems there, but they did know that rape was bad. I would say that the reason why he stresses that it's a bad thing is because Lucrece does seem to blame herself. And she doesn't, I don't think, blame herself in the original source text. I don't think she blames herself in Livy, and I don't think she blames herself in Ovid. I think it's more just a sort of, okay, you know I'm telling the truth that I was actually raped, and I'm going to do that by killing myself. I wouldn't uh, kill myself if I was lying, would I? So he said, in vain, so she's saying, uh, Lucrece is saying, in vain I rail at opportunity, at time, at Tarquin, and uncheerful night. In vain I cavil with mine infamy. In vain I spurn at my confirmed, despite the helpless smoke of words doth me no right. The remedy, indeed, to do me good is to let forth my foul, defiled blood. And, ah, so in vain, quoth she, I live and seek in vain some happy mean to end a helpless life. I feared by Tarquin's falchion to be slain, yet for the selfsame purpose seek a knife. But when I feared, I was a loyal wife. So am I now? Oh, no, there cannot be of that true type hath Tarquin rifled me. So she is, she does seem to blame herself for this. She does seem to say, oh, I was raped. Maybe I could have done something to, uh, to push back. But oh, no, I, I, uh, I was too weak. And now I am not a true wife. I mean, the, the narrator does say, oh, no, she's wrong. She is entirely innocent. She's a good woman. But why do you think this Shakespeare adds the detail of her, her blaming herself like this? Does it make us view her better? I mean, already the narrator makes it quite clear that Tarquin is a no-no bad boy and uh, deserves to be eviscerated, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe he doesn't use those words exactly, but those are my feelings. The thing is, as as we've mentioned before, it's the psychology that um, Shakespeare is really focusing on, not just the act. Because, like, frankly... I'm, I was just so exceptionally glad that the actors focused on at all. 
like thank fucking god to be honest because adonis and venus had sometimes been quite graphic in the way and especially in the way venus describes her own body going and yes feast upon my valleys my my wet weeds or whatever well in this one it's very would i should i say mechanical it's more national i guess um considering this is the crisis that brought down a monarchy so it's about war it's about honor it's about moral code that has been that has been broken and at the end of the act he just runs away like an absolute coward like a thievish dog creeps sadly thence so I'm just like, oh, thank God. And this, uh, I mean, the, the moral philosophy of this uh, poem, it does seem to be of that, you know, that's, that Socrates, that sort of Aristotle mind, that being a bad person is a bad life. So it's, it's not just saying, oh, you're hurting other people. By hurting other people, you are, in a sense, hurting your own character and hurting your own state of mind. So after he rapes her, it says, so fares it with this faultful lord of Rome who this accomplishment so hotly chased, for now against himself he sounds this doom, that through the length of times he stands disgraced. Besides, his soul's fair temple is defaced, to whose weak ruins muster troops of cares to ask the spotted princess how she fares. She says her subjects with foul insurrection have battered down her consecrated wall, and by their mortal fault brought in subjection her immortality and made her thrall to living death and pain perpetual which in her prescience she controlled still but her foresight could not forestall their will so it it is uh, so he does this thing where he is making you know you mentioned before that metaphor of siege warfare for the rape uh, so he's used siege warfare to talk about the rape of uh, of uh, Lucrece, but here he's using the idea of siege warfare, or rather siege warfare for his own soul, that by raping her he has, in a sense, raped himself. He has annihilated his own soul. His own soul has been, you know, torn out of the temple and beaten up by all of the you know, cares, all of the worries, all of the panic that now he must suffer throughout all time. I'm not going to say that he is the only victim here, but I will say that the, moral, <laughs> the moral philosophy of this work is that if you do something awful, you are going to suffer just because you have uh, annihilated the goodness in yourself. Ah, if only, if only he was actually annihilated in the poem as well, instead of going, instead of you know just ending on. And so they went on to banishing Tarquin's family. And ruined the monarchy. The end. Yeah, it, it does end with like someone, as we said at the beginning, he goes on for so long, so long, and then he just says, and then this happened. I'm not going to tell you it, but it's going to happen later on. I mean, I guess they just, I suppose it's just the thing that everyone knew had happened, at least if you were educated, that this was the incident that, um, this was Watergate. This was Watergate. Everyone knows what Watergate was. Watergate is shorthand. So it's like, you know what happened in the shorthand crisis. So you know what's going to happen next. It's the before I'm interested in, the culmination, the, the feelings. 
behind the incident. And on that, you know, on the note of, you know, this being, the, everyone knows what's going to happen to this. Or at least if you're reading this book, you probably know the story. I mean, at the, begin, at the very beginning, it, in that, the argument section where it gives a summary of the story, you do know what's going to happen. And that sort of has a dramatic irony effect. Like, there is that suspense. You know what's going to happen. Tarquin saying, oh, should I do this? Should I not do this? You know he's going to rape her. We have uh, uh, Lucrece saying, oh, let me argue you out of this. Don't be a bad man. You're going to hurt yourself. We know that this isn't going to work. She's saying, oh, should I kill myself? Should I not kill myself? Oh, no, I should not kill myself. But then we know she will kill herself. So the very fact that this is an adaptation and the fact that it goes on for such length, it just creates this sense of inevitable tragedy, even as things seem to be getting a bit better. We, the readers, know it will get worse. I'd say that is one use of this incredibly long style. It creates these moments. Uh, This is why I don't like tragedies. There's too much depression. Uh, Then you won't like when we get to Titus Andronicus. I already know I don't like Titus Andronicus. Uh, uh, At least I'll I'll make myself a butt-ton of hot chocolate to to get myself going through it. On the note of things that go on too long, do we want to talk about that moment where she, where Lucrece looks at a painting for a very long time? At last she calls to mind where hangs a piece of skillful painting made for Priam's Troy, before the witch is drawn the power of Greece, for Helen's rape the city to destroy, threatening cloud-kissing Ilion with annoy, which the conceited painter drew so proud as heaven it seemed. To kiss the turrets bowed. I mean, like, it does go on forever. And this is, yes, this is the fall of Troy in miniature. Uh, I, I will say that this is uh, the kind of thing that happens in ancient epic poems. If you read the Iliad or Virgil's Aeneid or, or I think Catullus, there are sections where the narrator will just dwell on this painting or this illustration and there is far too much information in the illustration. This, the level of story cannot possibly be contained in the illustration. And it just goes on and on and on until you forget what story was going on outside of it. I mean, like, there is this line in a few stanzas after it starts. Um, Why should the private pleasure of someone become the public plague of many more? Let sin alone committed light alone upon his head that hath transgressed so. Let guiltless souls be freed from guilty woe for one's offence. Why should so many fall to plague a private sin in general? Lo, here weeps Hecuba, where Priam dies, where manly Hector faints, here Troilus swounds, here friend by friend in bloody channel lies, and friend to friend gives unadvised wounds, and one man's lust these many lives confounds. Had doting Priam checked his son's desire, Troy had been bright with fame and not with fire. A very direct analogy. Very direct. Like, it takes... I mean, especially given that the Romans thought they were descended from the Trojans. So it's that we were undone by lust the first time, and now we're going to be undone a second time. Pretty much. It's just, like, very... It's so on the nose. It's it's quite on the nose. I mean, it's one of those things where it, there is something slightly naturalistic about it. One of those things where 
you think, oh, yes, I know that feeling, but I've never really seen it described before, where it's, you know, this is a painting she has on her house wall. It's been there for a while. But now that something has happened to her, suddenly it ha- this piece of art has some deep connection to you. That, you know, it's been on her wall. She's glanced at it a few times like, oh, now it speaks to me. Now that I've been raped and I see this entire world destroyed because of a rape, now I understand it. I mean, that is, uh, I mean, at least to me, that does sort of, I mean, I haven't been raped, but for other things, like you experience something in your own life and then suddenly you see a movie and it's like, oh, shit, that, that does touch me now. Oh, yeah, um, that has definitely happened like for Ghibli movies and myself. You mean when you were enlisted for a bunch of uh, eco-terrorists against an enroaching uh, industrial uh, government? Ah, uh, not that one, no. Um, so the Kiki's Delivery Service, like, that's just basically burnout. That's it's a movie about burnout. Ah, uh, and and then you watch it. Oh, I thought this was a charming thing, but now. I am reminded of my own life. And it's like, oh, cool. That is, I definitely wanted and needed that in my life. Cool. I I was watching this movie for fun. Not anymore. Not going to lie. I don't like it when it happens. It's fun when it happens, because it never happens for good things, to be honest. Yes, you never notice your own love in these things. No. You only notice the sadness because you don't want to notice the sadness. But yeah, like, so it makes sense for this painting to have, to gain attention from her. Because before it was just an abstract thing that happened in the past. But now it's like, oh no, this is happening to me. Is it also now going to happen to my family, to my um, husband? Because, like, so long as um, Tarquin's alive... Her secret is never going to be safe. She is never going to be safe because he's there. He might come back. He might threaten her again because that's just what monsters do. So she may be going while staring at this painting. This private woe of mine might become very public very quickly. And despite being assured by her conqueror with quotation marks very implied that you know he is going to be her secret friend there's no guarantee of her safety ever again it does get into her psychology i mean this uh, i mean this is perhaps a distasteful story but it does shakespeare does know how to get into the mind of her it does seem that works and even in this uh, part he does he does seem to work in the fact that she does blame herself for this. Like, she, she's looking at, uh, she says, show me the strumpet that began this stir that with my nails her beauty I may tear. So she is blaming Helen, that strumpet, uh, because, you know, Helen's beauty, she was stolen by Paris, taken to Troy, and then the Greeks had to go and destroy Troy. So, but she, you know, it's, it's called the Rape of Helen because she was seized and kidnapped. So... But, you know, she, Lucrece, is accusing Helen, but in a way that's accusing herself. And then there's another interesting thing where they're talking about uh, Sinon, uh, Sinon, I think it's called Sinon. He's the person who convinced, he's the, the Greek 
who pretended to be a defector to convince the Ro to convince the Trojans to take in the Trojan horse. I mean, you, you might have thought it's quite a stupid idea to bring in a Trojan horse, it, you know, to bring in a Greek horse into your building when you are enemies with these people. But the Greeks tried to make this a, but the Trojans and the Aeneid tried to make this slightly more understandable by saying, oh no, there's a very crafty liar who made them want to take this uh, Trojan horse in. But she's looking at Sinon and she is saying, and, the, and you know, I, to me, Sinon is meant to represent uh, Tarquin, at least Tarquin before he raped her. Because, you know, if, at the beginning of this story, it's quite explicit that Lucrece suspects nothing of Tarquin. I think the reason why she lets this man into her house, into her bed, well, close to her bedchambers at least, is because he is a, well, he's the king, and also he doesn't seem to have anything bad about him, at least to her. Like she's, uh, like here it is talking about Sinon. Uh, the well-skilled workman, this mild image, ah, so, but like a constant and confirmed devil, he entertained a show so seeming just, and therein so ensconced his secret evil, that jealousy itself could not mistrust, false creeping craft and perjury should thrust into so bright a day such black-faced storms, or blot with, with hell-born sin such sink-like forms. The well-skilled workman this mild image drew for perjured Sinon, whose enchanting story the credulous old Priam after slew, whose words, like wild fire, burnt the shining glory of rich-built Ilium, that the skies were sorry, and little stars shot from their fixed places, when their glass fell, wherein they viewed their faces. And then we have Lucrece saying, It cannot be, quoth she, that so much guile, she would have said, can lurk in such a look. But Tarquin's shape came in her mind the while, and from her tongue can lurk, from cannot took. It cannot be, she in that sense forsook, and turned it thus. It cannot be, I find, but such a face, could bear a wicked mind. So she, so she is, in a sense, she is likening her rape to the absolute fall of Troy. She was taken in by a crafty liar who, even when she thinks of him, does seem to be a good man, uh, a crafty, evil man, but a man who has a pleasing, trustworthy face about him. Pretty people can't be evil. I think maybe it's not pretty. It's more that he is... He doesn't look like a, a he doesn't look like a cartoon villain. Let's say. I mean, aren't most cartoon villains just kind of mean yes. looking, kind of not pretty looking? I risk my case. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! But this, you know, this does go on for quite a long time. And I mean, you say it's direct, but Shakespeare has never been afraid of being very direct. This is uh, what's the famous phrase? Uh, subtext is for cowards. I know writers who use subtext, and they are all cowards. Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, a masterpiece. <sighs> so yeah, I feel that vibe from from this piece. I mean, it might be obvious, but I do feel that there, and it, the subtext might be very weak. But it does feel like he is doing quite a good job of pattern matching. Like he's saying, "Look what I noticed. This thing matches this thing, and it's very fitting, isn't it? Don't you see, my dear readers?" Now praise me, buy my buy my poems. But yeah, also, um, I feel like this poem, because 
it's available to the general public, right? It's well, technically in like the wealthy esque middle class and above because you know they can pay for paper and books. So even if they are middle class, they might not be that educated, at least in terms of like history and Latin and all that jazz. So having this painting basically, you know, give a Cliff's Note version of, you know, the fall of Troy just makes sure people are on the same page that, so, you know, Shakespeare's like, okay, I'm pretty sure everyone knows this, but in case you don't, you can feel clever by knowing and knowing what I'm talking about. But if you don't, it's fine. Um, Here's a refresher. For those who, for those who could read English, but couldn't read Latin or Greek, here is just uh, a brief summary of why this is very dramatically ironical. Yeah, exactly. History repeats itself. First Don't... time as tragedy, second time also basically as tragedy. It's always tragic. <laughs> but yeah, um, a little above that, though, there's a bit of a call to action that I quite enjoyed. Um Time's glory is to calm contending kings, to unmask falsehood and bring truth to light, to stamp the seal of time and aged things, to wake the morn and sentinel the night, to wrong the wronger till he render right, to ruinate proud buildings with thy hours and smear with dust their glittering golden towers, to fill with wormhole stately monuments, to feed oblivion with decay of things, to blot old books and alter their contents, to pluck the quills from ancient raven's wings, to dry the old oak sap and cherished springs, to spoil antiquities of hammered steel and turn the giddy round of fortune's wheel, to show the beldam daughters of her daughter, to make the child a man and a man, the man a child, to slay the tiger that doth live by slaughter, to tame the unicorn and lion wild, to mock the subtle in themselves beguile, to cheer the ploughman with increaseful crops and waste huge stones with little water drops. And I'm just like, okay, that I did not know where that came from, but I was like, mm, I like this energy. This is beautiful. Thank there comes God. a point. There comes a point where those massive lists. There's you can very, you can very much graph graph them where there is oh it's energy 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 and then oh it's going on a bit too long. If the energy is going down a bit now, yeah. And little, and little above that, when truth and virtue have to do with thee, a thousand crosses keep them from thy aid. Thy, they buy thy help, but sin ne'er gives a fee. He gratis comes, and thou art well appaid. As well to hear as grant what he hath said. My collatine would else have come to me when Tarquin did, but he was stayed by thee. Guilty thou art of murder and of theft guilty of perjury and, suborn- and subornation, guilty of treason, forgery and shift, guilty of incest, that abomination. I'm not sure where that came from. And accessory- I think it, someone was saying that in Shakespeare's time, people would say, oh, it's incest, it's bestiality, when really all that meant it wasn't just, you know, man on top sex. Oh, okay. Anyway, an accessory by thine inclination to all sins past and all that are to come from the creation to the general doom. So she, you know, just a long series of self-recrimination. She goes, you know what? No, it's he is the treasonous, betraying, crafty little shit. And truth and time 
will unearth his crimes and absolve me, basically. Yes, um, she does. She does go back and forth on this. Uh, you know, she, just like Tarquin goes back. I'm not going to equate them morally, but they there is this sort of realistic psychological going back and forth in them. Where Tarquin's going back and forth, uh, should I rape her? Should I not rape her? In Lucrece's mind, it's like, oh, am I to blame, or could I have done more? No, I am not to blame. No, I should. I couldn't have done more. Oh, but actually, maybe I should kill myself. Oh, no, I should. It goes back and forth, back and forth. We get none of this. I mean, this is entirely Shakespeare invention. We get none of this in the original sources. Let me just read out. So when it comes to uh, Lucrece's suicide, there's part of her which is killing herself because in Shakespeare, there's part of herself which is killing herself because she thinks, oh, life is terrible now. There's another part which is, oh, no, I've done something so shameful or something so shameful has happened to me that I should kill myself. Uh, But she does kill herself and there is something conflicted in this. In Livy, in the history books of the Roman of the Roman people by Livy, the ancient historian. This is what she says. Uh, she says, by no means, for what can be right with a woman who has lost her honor? The traces of another man are on your bed, Colatinus. But the body only has been violated. The mind is guiltless. Death shall be my witness. But give me your right hands and your honor that the adulterer shall not come off unpunished. It is Sextus Tarquin who an enemy in the guise of a guest has borne away hence a triumph fatal to me and to himself, if you are men. So that's quite, sir, that's quite direct, okay? Yes, I was raped, it's not my fault. I'm going to kill myself just so you know I'm telling the truth here, but please promise me you'll kill the person who raped me. That is quite direct here. It's almost, it's almost in a sense, manly, really. It's a sort of yeah, no shit. It's very, it's very icy in its determination. And also it's not even a plea. It's an order because, you know, I is like, I'm doing this and you're going to do this if you are men. Yes. And, then, and it's like, you know what? <laughs> that's a that's bold coming from a, from a lady that is just has decided to straight up jack herself, um, which is not saying it's not. Oh, I don't know. But it is what we call problematic. It is, it is definitely <laughs> uh, problematic. But yeah, it is very incredible, just kind of baiting their masculinity into doing the right thing. It's like those stories of those Spartan wives saying, I've either come home on your either come home with your shield or on it. Oh yeah, that one too. Middle as hell. Whereas, <laughs> you know, Shakespeare, maybe this is to make her like there's quite a clear difference from Roman to England to Christian England about how they view suicide. You know, in in Roman times, you know, killing yourself that was a noble thing to do, or it could be a noble thing to do. Whereas in Shakespeare's time, maybe he needed to make her a bit softer, a bit more emotional, in order to make it somewhat forgivable that she killed herself. Forgivable or believable? I mean, it's like at this time, it wasn't prima facie a. I mean, it was a sin in Shakespeare's time. Killing yourself was a sin. And so, so yes, her killing herself would not have had this automatic, oh, that's metal. Uh, so, <laughs> they wouldn't have said, oh, that's metal. There are, that he is trying to make her more sympathetic to modern audiences when she kills herself. No, that's fair. I will still say it's very metal, at least to tell your husband to either come back, come back victorious or dead. Yeah. <laughs> Do better. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to, in the, as you say, in the original, um, she says, 
hey, I'm a go. And you will do your part if you are men. And um, she sort of has a very similar moment in like my line 1035 standard. Let him have time to tear his curled hair. Let him have time against himself to rave. Let him have time of time's help to despair. Let him have time to live a loathed slave. Let him have time a beggar's oughts to crave and time to see one that by arms doth live, disdain to him, disdain scraps to give. Let him have time to see his friends, his foes, and merry fools to mock at him resort. Let him have time to mark how slow time goes in time of sorrow, and how swift and short his time of folly and his time of sport. And ever let his unrecalling crime have time to wail the abusing of his time. And she just keeps going and basically gives him a very long curse. The Yes, the curse that she gives, I mean, she, I, there is something, she does give a long curse there. So mine enemy was strong, my poor self weak and far the weaker with so strong a fear. My bloody judge forbade my tongue to speak, no rightful plea might plead for justice there. His scarlet lust came evidence to swear that my poor beauty had purloined his eyes, and when the judge is robbed, the prisoner dies. Or teach me how to make mine own excuse, or at the least this refuge let me find, through my gross blood be stained with this abuse, immaculate and spotless is my mind, that was not force that never was inclined to accessory yieldings, but still pure, doth in her poisoned claws that yet endure. Lo here, the hopeless merchant of this lost, with head declined and voice downed up with woe, with sad set eyes and wreathed arms across from lips, new waxen pale, begins to blow the grief away that stops his answer so, but wretched as he is, he strives in vain, what he breathed out, his breath drinks up again. Yada, yada, yada. Yada, 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 yada. yada. I'm just looking for. And for <laughs> my sake, when I might charm thee so, for she that was thy Lucrece now attend me, be surely revenged on my foe, thine, mine own, his own, suppose thou dost defend me from what is past, the help that thou shalt lend me comes all too late, yet let the traitor die, for sparing justice feeds iniquity. So he, Shakespeare does sort of put in those lines in Livy, but none, let's say that Livy is a bit more pithy, a bit more laconic. She is saying, I, my body is uh, my my body is sinful. My mind is innocent. Kill them if you are men. The sheer the the writing style of Shakespeare here is very much saying it goes on and on, and it has it by the nature of it. It's quite a bit softer now. Definitely softer. Um, it's it has a very I I do beg your pardon, but this has to be done. Kind of. Yes. I know that it's too late. I know that things in the past can't be undone. But, you know, don't be merciful because mercy, that can lead people to do other awful things. I'm not sure why, but it has very Paddington Bear energy. <laughs> I don't remember that one from Paddington Bear. <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's just so, it's just such a polite request. Like, yes, um, so this is the explanation. This is what I'm going to do. If If you would be so kind as to do justice for me, I'd appreciate it. Bye-bye. And then she kills herself. Yes. Even here she sheatheth in her harmless breast a harmful knife, and thence her soul unsheathed. 
Now that's a good two lines to describe a suicide. Um, that blow that did that it from the deep unrest of that polluted prison where it breathed her contrite sighs under the clouds bequeathed her winged sprite and through her wounds doth fly life's lasting date from cancelled destiny. Cancelled destiny. I remember that hashtag. <laughs> Manifest destiny uh, goes to cancelled destiny. And bubbling from her breast, it doth divide in two slow rivers the, that the crimson blood circles her body on every side. Who, like late-sacked island, why does this remind me vaguely of Ophelia? And bubbling from her breast, it doth divide in two slow rivers that the crimson blood circles her body in on every side, who, like a late-sacked island, vastly stood bare and unpeopled in this fearful flood. It is. I mean, I, I suppose it reminds you of Ophelia because it's both two beautiful women dying in somewhat languorous water. I mean, the one water is blood, but uh, yeah. It does the job. Shakespeare does dead women beautifully. <laughs> oh no, this is not good. That was Shakespeare and Powell's episode nine, The Rape of Lucrece. Now we're going around the table just to ask Sophie, what is something you did not like about this poem? Uh, I suppose it would be disingenuous to say the entirety uh, because it is a well-fucking-written play. No poem. God damn it. It does go on forever. Uh, see, the problem with this play is that it exists and I had to like deal with it and contend with it. But, you know, a, a poem cannot be blamed for its existence. The only thing that I can blame is Shakespeare himself. So um, you done did not good, William. That is all I am going to say. It's like when you look at those fetish arts online. It's like, this person plainly has so much talent, but I do not like how the talent is used. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, that's... I hate how that how accurate that kind of is. When it, so when it comes to what I didn't like about this, I think the listeners understand that I have a higher tolerance for long, drawn-out passages. However, even my tolerance sort of ends somewhere. I do feel that the speeches in this did go on for too long. I do remember skipping over quite a lot of Lucrece's uh, long speeches. It's, I mean, she goes on for pages and pages and pages. First saying, here's why you shouldn't rape me. And then later on, she's saying, oh, here's why what happened was awful. And here's how shit my life is. It goes on for pages and pages and pages. And I think maybe two pages at most, that could have done it. Yeah. But now, but now on a positive note, Sophie, what is something that you did like about this poem? Ah. Well, this is a... So a couple of things. There's the begrudging like of, you know... It was very well written. Some parts were criminally 
evocative and I just wish that skill had been used on other things, on other projects. And he pretty much would use this on other projects. Yeah, no, he will go on to do those other projects and I just wish he'd stuck to comedies. I'm really not looking forward to the tragedies. Uh, um, when Lucrece was, you know, actually kind of being strong and semi-vengeful, that brought me joy. I'm like, thank God. Um, there are, there is, there is some levity. There is not, not levity, but you know what I mean. Just not depression. Just not stone cold depression. And uh, I was very glad for that. Yes. <laughs> and what I liked about this was, uh, this is sort of the other side of what I was saying in my negatives. It's that, as I did say before, I do find that this has a good level of words to events. With Venus and Adonis, there were only like five things that happened in those hundred pages. In this one, there are distinct scenes, distinct conflicts. And so Shakespeare does dwell to a long extent on each detail, but there are more things happening. So I think it's a good level of dwelling. He dwells on different things, let's say. So it is, it is the style that I like in a form and a story that I think fits it. But that was episode nine of Shakespeare Play-by-Play, Play, The Rape of Lucrece. I don't think we'll be doing any more of his poems. There are a few other poems attributed to Shakespeare, his sonnets, obviously, but other things as well. But thankfully, those other narrative poems are of dubious authorship, so we will take that as an excuse not to do them. Yay! Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pal. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.